All right, open your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you to get a second place in your Bible, Romans chapter 11, please. Philippians 1, verse 21. Romans 11, verse 33. And today's sermon, as you can see on your outline, we're preaching a message called To Live is Christ. This is going to feel much more like a Bible study than what you might expect from a Sunday morning sermon. God has uh, been putting this particular lesson on my heart for a while. I hope it'll be a help to you. Philippians 1 and verse number 21, and then Romans 11 and verse 33. Now, as you can see on the outline, I have two points to the outline we're going to cover. I'm going to ask you to look at the verses with me for points one and two. But then there are 15 subpoints. I've tried to, can I, can I use this metaphor? Shoot every fish in the barrel. <laughs> I've tried to cover it all. But guys, in my notes, I promise you, I'm only giving you half of what I studied for. There's so much more that, that can go into this lesson. So Philippians 1 and verse number 21, Paul says this, for to me, I like that. He, he, he's not going to speak for everybody. To me, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We're going to focus our attention on the first half of that verse, one phrase of it, to live is Christ. If you would, join me, please, in a word of prayer. Father, thank you this morning. What a privilege it is to gather again. Lord God, what a week it has been. What a what an absolute pleasure to get to walk with you, talk with you, hear from you, watch you work. And now, Father, we want to see you work once again in the sanctuary as you have done so many times before. Father, I read in the Bible that when we're weak, that's when we're strong. We get to see you do something instead of us do something. That's what we're counting on this morning. Please, Father, help us speak to our hearts. We want to know more about Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul says, to me, to live is Christ. I believe there's a fundamental mistake that gets made with statements like this. When we read about life in the Bible or living, we confuse these two terms. Number one, immortality. And number two, life. We think of eternal life and we think we will live forever. That's immortality. Living forever is immortality. Eternal life is more than that. Immortality is part of eternal life, but it is not all there is to life. Immortality, you are simply existing forever, but what it means to actually live, to live is Christ. Colossians 3, verse number four says, for when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear also with him in glory. To live is more than simply to exist. When we talk about receiving the gift of eternal life, I fear that too many people understand this as a mindless life upgrade. They think of it as an injection that they get. I, I went down to the, to the God hospital and they gave me an injection of Jesus and now my life is going to get better. And much like steroids, they think this is just going to make me a better version of me. That's not how eternal life works. When we say to live is Christ, 
what we're doing is we're taking the Lord Jesus Christ and following his footsteps. We're taking his attributes and making them our own. We are trying to conform to his image so that it's not just Christ gave me life, now look what I can do with it. Christ gave me life, now I'm gonna let him tell me how to use it. In another place, Paul said this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans chapter 11, let's see how Paul worded it here. Romans 11, verse 33. I'm sorry, I said 33. That should be verse 36. Please forgive me. Romans 11, verse 36. At the very end of the chapter, Paul says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I want you to see the three parts of this verse. For of him, everything proceeded forth from God, from Christ. He is the originator, the creator of it all. And then it says through him. We'll talk about that in a moment. It says and to him. Ultimately, we are answerable to God. We stand before him at the judgment and we have to explain why we did what we did with what he provided. The grace, the knowledge, the resources, the mercy, the love. We answer to him for that. So it's of him, it started there. It's to him, it finishes there. But let's not forget that middle part, it's through him. This, is, this ties together with to live is Christ. Where did I come from? Where I'm going to end up? But what about now? How am I supposed to be walking daily, behaving, thinking, speaking, dealing with people, interacting with people, with the government, with my workmates, with my spouse, with my children? Each and every day, how does God expect me to move through, through, through this life? How do I go through, through life? It says, through him I funnel each thought each action each feeling each emotion each decision it is funneled through him to me to live is Christ you've heard me say this so many times that we are to be conformed to his image you folks remember me saying that over and over again I want to show you for the next few minutes why you hear me hammer that point over and over again this idea of being conformed to Christ's image it is the heart of the New Testament if you are not clued into what that means and how important it is it is going to be difficult to understand the emphasis of the New Testament let me show you while you're in Romans come to chapter 8 please verse number 29 and this is point one on your outline Point one is conform to his image. Conform to his image. I'm going to show you from Paul and then Peter and then John. I've given you some space underneath point one. If you'd like to write these verses down, you're more than welcome. I am going to quickly take you through them so that you're familiar with it. I just want you to see that it's not me hammering this point, but actually it is the apostles who gave us the New Testament. Romans 8 and verse 29. For 
it says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's break this verse down piece by piece. For whom he did foreknow, God knew who would willingly receive Christ as his or her savior. Are we clear on that statement? Listen to the statement again. God knew before the foundation of the world, God knew who would choose to receive Christ. So do you understand that God has foreknowledge, but that does not do away with our free will. He knew what we would choose. God did not cause us to choose it. But based on what God knew, God made a plan. That's the predestination. A destination is where you want to end up, yes? To predestinate is making a plan so that you end up in that place. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to a specific purpose. Look at the last word of verse 28. What's the last word of verse 28? Purpose. Everybody loves verse 28, don't we? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. If you don't understand his purpose, verse 28 kind of loses its meaning. We think all things are going to work together for good according to how I want things to work. That's not how that works. All things work together for good according to God's purpose. What's the plan? The plan is to be conformed to the image of of his son that has been the plan literally before day one (laughs) from before the foundation of the world that he might be the firstborn among many brethren so this work is going on internally the Holy Spirit enters into us the moment we receive Christ as our Savior and he begins to change us from the inside that work will one day be completed when the outside is also conformed to the image of of God's son the same glorified body that Jesus had when he rose from the dead one day we will have that kind of body Romans 8 verse 23 not only they but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body do you see there is any an internal work but that internal will one day end up as an external work, completely conformed to his image, starting on the inside, ending up on the outside. Look with me at chapter 13, Romans 13, verse 14. Before we ever deal with the wonderful attributes of a resurrection body, that resurrection body will never be able to die it will be able to fly that's just cool you can walk through walls amazing you'll never sin again not one wrong thought not one wrong word you'll never even have to pause and think about should I say this it will be right oh the resurrection body what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, wonderful day that will be. 
But we don't have to wait for the glory of God's conforming power to kick in until the resurrection. It starts now. He's, he wants to change you right now to be more like his son. Romans 13, verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That is another way of saying be conformed to his image. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how the second half of the verse intimates putting off you? Make not provision for the flesh. Put that aside. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, take your Bible a little bit to the right. First Corinthians chapter 2, please. First Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians 2 and verse 7. First Corinthians 2, verse 7. For those of you that have done the discipleship course, you're familiar with one of our lessons called the mysteries. And we present all seven mysteries that are given in the New Testament. Paul sums it up here in verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God. Do you understand what wisdom is? Wisdom is being able to make a plan. That's, that's one very short, pithy def definition for wisdom. The ability to make a proper plan. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Do you see how this ties into what we saw in Romans 8 and predestination? God had a plan before the foundation of the world. He did not fully reveal. He did not explain this plan until the New Testament started. Once the Holy Spirit came down, this plan was put into effect. And Paul says, now we are telling you how the Holy Spirit works in us. He reveals the deep things of God. You can see it in verse 8, 9. Do you see verse 10? But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. God is now revealing more to us in the New Testament than He ever did. What's the purpose? Verse 16. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Can anybody properly say what God's thinking? No, not until God tells you what he's thinking. But God has told us what he's thinking. He's told us what's on his mind. He wants us to be like his son. He wants us to live, think, act, speak like his son. Verse 16, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We know what the plan is. And that's how we are able to actuate the plan. We can put it into action. If I can ask you to take your Bible, come to Ephesians. A little bit to the right again, Ephesians chapter four. Let me show it to you in another passage. Ephesians four. Verse 11, Ephesians 4, verse 11. In the passage, we're reading about how Christ formulated the church, how when he went back to heaven, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts unto men, he organized the body of Christ. And within the body of Christ, which we also know as the universal church, there are local assemblies that have structure, they have appointed leaders why 
Why did Jesus take this great care to establish what we know as the church? Verse 11, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, that is to complete them, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Why the leadership, why the church? To build people up. That's what edifying is, to build up the body. Verse 13, Till we all come. So we are to continue this work that Christ started and established. We are to continue this until what? What's the goal? Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Have you heard us talking recently about furthering your faith? About growing in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the purpose. That's the plan. He says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the plan? Grow up to be more like Jesus. Do you see that? It's another way of saying conformed to his image. Verse 14, here's the challenge. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. What could hinder the furtherance of your faith? The frightening reality of false preachers. Do you see how Paul put it? We see this repeated over and over in the New Testament. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in how many things? Every aspect of your life. I want you to underline that, highlight it, circle it, remember it. May grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. What's the goal? To conform to his image, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow to be more like him. Come one page, maybe to the right, Philippians 1, verse 6. Philippians 1, verse 6. Let me show it to you once more. Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun, begun a good work in you, in you, it's internal, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's when it becomes external. The day of Jesus Christ is the rapture when the body gets changed. I have great confidence that what the Holy Spirit began to do in me on the 3rd of August, 1996, he's still doing right now and will continue to do even beyond my physical death. My, my going to the grave will not stop God's eternal plan. He will finish the work when he blows the trumpet and calls me out. Philippians chapter two, verse five. Philippians two, verse five. The good work that the Holy Spirit is performing, let's see what it is. Philippians two, five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How can that be possible? How can, we just saw it in 1 Corinthians two, didn't we? We have the mind of Christ. It's a matter of application. It's a matter of learning to be less like me and more like him. 
Verse 6, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. How am I supposed to go about conforming to Christ's image? I have to humble myself. I have to empty myself. I have to make myself of no reputation and say it's not about me being a better version of me. It's about me being obedient to God, doing it His way instead of my way. That's the heart of it. Philippians 3, verse 20. Philippians 3, verse 20. Paul writes, For our conversation is in heaven what does that mean our conversation is in heaven the word conversation it means the way you live your behavior your manner of life our conversation is in heaven what does he mean my my manner of life the way that i live is seated at the right hand of god When you ask a Christian, how are you supposed to behave, think, talk? You point to the right hand of God and you say, there's my example for every part of life. To me, to live is Christ. He is my conversation. He is my manner of living. For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch verse 21. Who shall change our vile body? that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Do you see Philippians 2 internally? Let the mind be in you. Philippians 3 externally, the body gets changed. He is able to subdue all things, internal and external, unto himself because he's doing that good work in us. I've shown you from Paul, believe me, we have only scratched the surface. We could go three times more in the writings of Paul. Let me give you two places in other apostolic writing. 2 Peter chapter 1. You should know this verse by now. We recently preached through it. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1 verse 3. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter says it like this. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. I've recently explained it. Let me just quickly repeat it. When Jesus came in the flesh, this is God in human form, he gave us everything we needed to live a godly life. That's a tremendous statement. Then it says, Through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye uh, ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I'm showing it to you again. Partakers of the divine nature. That is another way to say conformed to his image. When Jesus came, he made all of that possible. I'll give you one more. 
1 John chapter 2. A couple pages to the right. 1 John chapter 2. And this one is going to be very practical. Nothing real deep to this statement, but exactly what you've been seeing in Paul, exactly what you've seen in Peter, you're going to see now in John. But he puts it very practically. 1 John 2, verse 6. 1 John 2, verse 6. He that saith, he abideth in him. So if a, a Christian makes the profession that he is walking with Christ, he says, I am saved and I am in fellowship with Christ. If he's going to make that profession, then this should be true. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So if you claim to be saved and in fellowship with Christ, then you should be walking like Christ. Isn't that pretty straightforward? You should be following his example. Your life should look like his. Nothing real deep to that. It is the same thing as saying, be conformed to, to his image. Now I'm going to move to part two of our outline. Part one, conform to his image. Part two, I'm going to move to something Jesus often said. And that is, come and follow me. That's part two. Come and follow me. We understand from the Apostle Paul that the mysteries of the New Testament, the inner workings of the Holy Spirit, the predestinated plan of God, all of that was kept secret since the world began, revealed through Paul, and now we have it. While Jesus was on the earth, he did not explain the body of Christ. He did not explain how the Holy Spirit would work in us, seal us to the day of redemption. He didn't touch on that. I do want to say, however, that even though Jesus did not reveal the inner workings of those mysteries, he did set in motion the practical responsibility of those mysteries. L let me try to explain it like this. Conform to his image. Grow up into him. Partaker of his divine nature. Here's how Jesus put it. Follow me. Just come follow me. What was he trying to get people to do by saying, come follow me? It's not a geographical reference. He's not trying to create a long queue. That was not his goal. Come follow me. What's he wanting people to do? Watch me do it so that you can do it. So he didn't explain the inner workings and how the Holy Spirit would indwell us and seal us and, and glorify our body at the end. He didn't explain all that. But he set in motion the practical working of being conformed to his image. I'll give you a few verses. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. Again, we can go through the Gospels over and over with this. You can jot these down if you'd like. Matthew 4, verse 19. Matthew 4, verse 19. Jesus is walking near the Sea of Galilee. In verse 19, he saith unto them, unto Peter and Andrew, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. What will happen, Lord, if I follow you? You'll become more like me. 
This is a very good way to recognize in your own life, please check your own heart this morning. Are you following Christ? Because if you are, you'll be more like him. He says, I will make you. I will make you. Any of you ladies familiar with this term? Getting a makeover? Right? I see all these befuddled looks on the men's faces. Like, yeah, I don't get it. But, but you, you women, you can understand what I mean, yeah? You get a makeover. It's, you redo the whole thing, yeah? That, that's what we need. In our broken, sinful states, we need a makeover. Jesus said, follow me, and I'll give you that makeover you so desperately need. I'll make you more like me. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, verse 19. Matthew 8, 19. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. What an amazing statement. Doesn't this sound noble? Lord, anywhere you go, I'll go. Look at the response. In verse 20, Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He, he didn't commend this man's offer. He said, uh, Sir, I want you to understand, when you offer to follow me, make sure that you get the purpose of following me right. This man in verse 19 said, Whithersoever. In, in modern English, we would say, Wherever you go. This is not a geographical exercise. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus is not trying to create a long queue of people following him from one city to the next. It's not whithersoever, it's howsoever. If the man would have said, I will follow you howsoever you go, that would have been a very different statement. That's the statement that I encourage you to make today. To look Jesus square in the eye and say, Jesus, it's not a matter of where, but how. I will live my life the way you lived yours. I'll, fill, I'll follow you howsoever you go. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This, we see the fulfillment of it in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus saying, Not my will, but thine be done. It's the essence of what he's saying. Verse 25, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. What's the practical lesson? Lord, I'm not going to live my life the way I want to. I will lose that, and yet I will find true life because I'm going to do it your way. Jesus said, if you want to come and follow me, then you have to deny yourself. You have to put off the old man and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how Jesus has worded it differently? But he's saying basically the same thing. Matthew 19, verse 21. Matthew 19, verse 21. The rich young ruler has come to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? 
without digging into all of the doctrinal side to this, can we just look at verse 21? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And don't forget this part. And come and follow me. The reason I point this out, Jesus, if he would have stopped this statement after telling him treasure in heaven, do you understand? We might have learned a different lesson. All I have to do is give away all my stuff, give to the poor, I'll be a good person. You can do the first three-fourths of that verse and be an excellent humanitarian and the world will applaud you. But you still will not have put on Christ. To me, to live is Christ. I have to get to the end of the verse. It's not a matter of simple generosity, which is wonderful. It is commendable, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is get rid of whatever's hindering you from following Christ so that you can follow him completely. As I mentioned earlier, we could go on and on where Jesus said things to this effect. Let me pose this question to you. If the Lord Jesus Christ were to pass through the building today in the flesh, stop in front of you as he did with Matthew, by the way. This is what Jesus said to Matthew. He stood before him and he said, follow me. That's all he said. Follow me. Do you realize the gravity of that request? How do you respond? What would you expect if you were to rise up and begin to follow? What do you think you'd learn if you were to follow Jesus around for the next three years and just watched how he interacted with people? In how many ways do you think that would change your life? Three years just following him. What if you were to commit today I have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going to take three years and I'm going to study in depth every step, every word, every decision, and I'm going to see what parts of Jesus' life I can apply to my own. And I'm going to see if a little bit of his behavior can rub off on me. We call him Savior. We call him Lord. We call him our God, our creator, and rightfully so. All glory and honor is due unto him. Before he was our savior, he was our teacher. Before he died on the cross, he was an example. Let's not forget that there are so many things we can learn. What I seek to do for the next few minutes, and I will move quickly, I want to give you 15 different examples of things you can learn from the life of Christ. What I, what I expect from this, I am actually creating homework for you. I'm so sorry. I know for <laughs> some of you are allergic to homework. I get that. I'm sorry. But that is my intention today. I'm only giving you a taste. Right? I, I want to put the tools in your hands. I expect you to pick up the shovel, to take out that pickaxe, and to do some work to dig into what I'm giving you today. I know that there are so many things represented on this list. I may not touch on the thing you'd like to know about. 
I just want to show you, though, by looking in the life of Christ, you can find something that applies to you. Even week to week, day to day, as life changes, you can find something. If if the idea of a pickaxe and a shovel scares some of you, because again, some people are allergic to work. If if, If you're worried about that, let me give you a different, I'll switch my metaphors. Have you ever gone to an ice cream shop and they have chocolate and vanilla, you know what that tastes like. But raspberry lemon sherbet, why would anybody? Coconut mango swirl. You know, you get these crazy, crazy flavors, but who knows, you've never tried it. Have you ever seen those little spoons they give you? I can do a lot of damage with those little spoons. <laughs> I could just about put haagen out of business with those little spoons, right? Think of it like this. I'm going to give you 15 little spoons and just reach in and just get a little taste, little taste, and you might, as we dig into one, go, oh, that's, I need to know more about that, and then you can come back and order triple scoop. (laughs) I'm just going to give you a quick taste. So here we go. To me, to live is Christ. What about if you're a preacher? If you'd like to write verses down uh, next to these points you're welcome to but I'm going to move quickly I'm not going to ask you to find all of these okay number one on the list is a preacher now you say well that really doesn't apply to me and it probably doesn't apply to most of you you think but uh, look where you're at you're in a church listening to a preacher And Lord willing, you'll be in a church somewhere for the rest of your life listening to a preacher. So it it would do well not only for the preacher to know how does Jesus preach, but also for the church member to know what should he expect from a preacher. They said this about Jesus. Never man spake like this man. When they heard him preach, they said, now that's not something you hear every day. After Jesus preached... He ended his sayings, and the Bible said the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. He wasn't wishy-washy. He was very direct. Jesus said, I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, So I speak. What's the job of a preacher? Hear from God, tell the people. How straightforward is that? Hear from God, tell the people. If you're a church member, you know what you're learning as you read through the life of Christ? Jesus did not get fancy with his sermons. He got to the point. He used illustrations. He made things practical. He he brought it down onto the bottom shelf so that anybody could get it. But Jesus was not trying to impress people with his preaching. He was trying to communicate truth. Jesus was the perfect balance of meekness and boldness. He could comfort you and he could cut you. It all depended on you and your attitude that you brought to the service. Let me tell you something about Jesus as a preacher. He didn't take things personally. When people rejected him, you know what he said? Sins committed against the Son of Man can be forgiven. He said, if you don't like the way that I said it, 
Okay. You don't like the way that I look? Okay. He said, but understand this. It's not so much me personally I'm worried about, but if you start saying that I'm under the influence of the devil, you've blasphemed the Holy Ghost. That's a serious offense. He didn't take it personally. Jesus said this, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Jesus said, I'm not here at my own behest. I didn't, I didn't tell myself to do this. I'm saying these things on God's behalf, so if you don't receive it, it's actually God that you have a problem with. Now, isn't that a good attitude to have as you stand up to preach? Isn't that something as a church member you'd want to know? That if the preacher is telling me something that's coming from the Bible, it's thus saith the Lord, not the preacher. Something else I learned as I look in the life of Christ, Jesus said this at the beginning of his ministry, think not that I'm come to destroy the law of the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He says, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus, Jesus said, you can verify what I'm saying with the Bible. Isn't that an excellent example for a preacher? I should not stand and say, now you just have to listen to anything I say because I'm the preacher and I'm right. No, no, check me out with the Bible. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not. We must recognize the authority of Scripture. That's great advice for a preacher. Number two, a husband. I fear that I could ramble on on this. I'll try to keep my statements concise. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, please study the life of Christ and look at how he treated the disciples. That is an example of how a husband should take care of, love on, spend time with his wife. Jesus never abused their submission. He never took advantage of them. He did not see them as disposable. He reminded them that they were of great value. Even though, listen, husbands, sometimes the disciples got on his nerves. he would patiently tell them, you're getting on my nerves. <laughs> but let us never forget this statement. The Bible says, having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. Gentlemen, take this verse into account. If I'm a husband wanting to learn from the life of Christ how to be a better husband, the Bible says, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is creating, right now, building a safe place to spend time with his wife. Gentlemen, can I suggest that you take great effort to create a safe, comfortable, inviting environment in your home where your wife wants to be near you, where she looks forward to coming home and being near you. How can we not learn from the sacrificial love that Christ had for the church? There's so much to be learned for a husband. Now, what about this? How about a wife? You say, now, pastor, I think we're stepping into uncharted territory here. 
How are we going to look in the life of Christ and find the example for a godly wife? Doesn't that seem a little unorthodox? And I say, yes, it does. But, but, oh my goodness, there's something very deep about this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, let me break it down. The head of Christ is the Father. The head of the man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. There's an authority structure. The Father, Christ, man, woman. Watch this now. The woman is supposed to be in submission to the man. Christ is in submission to the Father. So I can look at how Christ related to the Father and in so doing I learn how a wife can relate to her husband. Man, now that opens up the Gospels in a brand new way. I can look at how Jesus spoke with and treated the Father and I learn about being a biblical wife. I always refer to this passage. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This speaks so loudly, oh, so loudly to what a wife can do and should be. Do you hear in this that she is not spineless? She is not a doormat. She is allowed to speak up and tell the person over her, I would like to do it this way. Do you see that? But she finishes the statement saying, I, I respect your authority. I will do as you will. But honey, you put in whatever trutelnam you'd like, whatever pet name you want. But honey, I, I would like this. It is okay for you ladies not, not to stand up in a rebellious way, but to make your heart known to the one over you. If I can, gentlemen, come back to you. Because there's actually, oh, there's so much more you can learn about a husband-wife relationship when you study Christ. I'm gonna speak passively for a moment. Did you know in the book of Proverbs, the Bible commands that a virtuous woman, her children are supposed to arise up and call her blessed, and her husband is supposed to praise her. Did you know that? Proverbs 31, verse number 28. At the end of Christ's life, he prayed and he said, Father, glorify thy name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus understood, Father, I'm here to do what you want. And the Father acknowledged that. The Father rose up and praised him. The Father, on more than one occasion, said, this is my beloved son. Husbands, wouldn't it be nice to recognize just how happy you are with your wife? I think there's so much that can be learned about a husband-wife relationship if you look at Christ and the Father. Didn't Peter say that husbands are supposed to give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel? Do you remember that? You say, but how, how would Jesus be considered the weaker vessel? He came down in human form. He humbled himself. So you can look at how the father treated him. You can look at his attitude towards the father and you'll find the perfect balance. The next thing on the list, a father. And again, you might find this to be a bit of a, 
of an obstacle. Jesus never fathered any children. So biologically speaking, doesn't this handicap him from teaching us anything about being a good father? I say that there's really no limits to Jesus. A father is to be a mentor. The word mentor means to advise or to train. Gentlemen, are we not supposed to train up our child in the way he or she should go? Jesus was a mentor, the greatest mentor there ever was. I find in today's world that men can make a child, but then they cannot train a child. They can perform the act that leads to a child, but then they cannot lead the child. Where in the life of Christ do we learn about being a good father? It says that when Jesus chose the 12 to be apostles, he ordained them, he set it, he set it up, he established it, that they should be with him. Think about that, dads. He said, you guys, I want you to spend time with me. Fathers, make time, establish it in your schedule that your kids get to be with you. How many kids are growing up, their dad is alive, but not a part of their life? Jesus was a part of his disciples' life. This is especially true as kids get a little older, they get into their teenage years, and the question comes out, do my parents actually care about me? And kids will sometimes challenge their parents' love. Does he care? Does, does mom and dad love me? Jesus faced this, didn't he? In the boat, he was sleeping. The disciples came and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? The disciples were a little overdramatic, weren't they? We're all gonna die. That's teenagers for you right they didn't get the text message they wanted I'm, I'm dead it's not as bad as you think do, do you see the parenting lesson in this what did Jesus do he rose up and he rebuked the wind and then he rebuked the disciples <laughs> and he said guys calm down I told you we were going to the other side we're going to the other side now calm down Jesus, yes, on occasion, had to put his disciples in their place. He knew that sometimes he had to rebuke them. But at no point, at no point did he stop caring about them. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The disciples, even after they forsook him, Jesus still, still was ready to bring them back, take them back, receive them back into fellowship. Isn't there so much that can be learned about parenthood? about being a father. I, I, I tried on this next one, a mother. Oh, this was difficult for me because I've never been a mother. <laughs> I tried to narrow it down. What, what does a mother not do? That's, that's the challenge to this. Every good and right thing that you find in the world, you should find in a mother being loving, patient, compassionate, I, all of this. I, when I think of, of a mother, I, I think of that child desperately in need of attention, 
desperately in need of training, of learning, and that child knows when that child get hurt, gets hurt, nine times out of ten, the child runs to mom and not dad. This was my advice to my children growing up. They get hurt, rub some dirt on it. That is not good advice. That's not good advice. Christina would take him in and say, come here. Mama loves you. Mama will take care of it. She, there's just something about the love and care and concern of a mother. It's hard to put into words. I think this statement sums it up. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. I, to me, that just sums up what a mother should be, right? Meek and quiet spirit, 1 Peter 3. When I look at this aspect of Jesus' life, I believe there's a lot that a mother could learn. And, and if you don't mind me just slipping this in, let's not allow the Roman Catholic Church to steal away Mary. I understand that they've twisted a lot of uh, what is said about Mary. She's not the mother of God, but she was the mother of Jesus and a very good one. She was highly favored of God. There's much that can be learned about motherhood if you'll look at the life of Mary. What about a child, number six? How many of you this morning under the age of 18 would you raise your hand if you're under the age of 18? Just want to know who I'm speaking with. All right, a few of you. I know that we have several in the Sunday school class. Uh, moms and dads, you can feel free to pass this on to your children later. We don't have much about the childhood of Jesus in the Bible. I think you folks know that. We have one story when he was 12 in Luke chapter 2. And it says, after he was found at the temple, he went back home with his mother and father and was subject unto them. He obeyed his mom and dad. That's pretty good advice in and of itself. Listen to this next part. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. He grew up physically and he grew up mentally. He studied. Kids, go to school. <laughs> Do your homework. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Listen to this next part. It says he increased in, faith, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As a child, he increased in favor with God. His relationship with God got better as a child. And listen to this part. He increased in favor with man. He got along with people. He was not annoying. He was not a bully. He did not go around getting on people's nerves. Was Jesus different? Yes. Did he, did he get into trouble and give into peer pressure? No. But still more people respected him. Even at a young age, he increased in favor with them as well. But listen, you say, but we don't have a lot of details about his childhood. Yes, and we learn from that. Kids, you're not the center of the universe. <laughs> Amen. Because some moms and dads treat their kids as if they are, and that's a mistake. We can learn from the life of Christ. The next thing on the list, a student. This might be a bit strange. Several of you are students. How could you possibly learn from Jesus when it comes to being a student? What did Jesus ever need to learn? 
He is God manifest in the flesh. He had access to all knowledge, but remember, he humbled himself. So in accordance with the Father's command of humility, he took upon him the form of a servant, which means he needed to learn. Jesus never went to some fancy university. John 7, verse 15, it says, The Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? So Jesus had a, a, an intellect, a very good intellect, a degree-level intellect, but he didn't have the paperwork. It wasn't an accredited degree. Jesus never spoke against PhDs. Jesus never rebuked anybody for being a doctor or a lawyer. Being educated is just fine until your education gets in the way of you knowing God. Then Jesus spoke against it. What do we learn about being a student? When Jesus was young, it says this, he was sitting in the midst of doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. How do you learn? Pay attention when people talk. And if you're not sure about something, ask questions. Isn't that a brilliant example? Pay attention. Sitting in the midst of doctors and Jesus was inquisitive. You don't have to spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of rands to be intelligent. You just need to take it upon yourself to ask the right questions and learn. Number eight, being a friend. What would Jesus have to teach us about being a friend? We know that he was a friend to sinners, yes? The Bible says in Zechariah, it's a prophecy. One day they will say, what are these wounds in thy hands? And he will say, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. So in, in the sense of Jesus being a friend to sinners, he was friendly to everybody in that he went out of his way to die for them. But Jesus also had close personal friends beyond just the average acquaintance. John the Baptist was one of them. John 3.29, John said, I am a friend of the bridegroom. But listen to this. When John was cast into prison, what did Jesus do? He left town. Ouch. John was in prison, and John began to doubt. Remember this in Matthew 11? And John sent a couple of his disciples and said, are you really the Messiah or should we wait for another? Jesus did a bunch of miracles, sent the messengers back and said, you tell John I'm the real deal and don't be offended. You know what Jesus did after that? He turned to the crowd and he said, now what did you guys expect to see in John the Baptist? A reed shaken by the wind, somebody clothed in gorgeous apparel, that's for kings. He said, this guy was used of God, he's the greatest among women. Anybody that's ever been born, he's the greatest. Listen, as a friend, Jesus stood up for his friend, even when his friend doubted him. Even when his friend let him down, the Bible says a friend loveth at all times. In John 15, Jesus speaks to his disciples. He's about to go and die, and Jesus says, a Lord doesn't tell his servant everything. He says, but I'm telling you everything. I'm giving you all the details. I'm telling you that I'm gonna die. I'm telling you that the Spirit's gonna come and help you. He says, I'm treating you like a friend. You know what a friend does? A friend pours out his or her heart to that other person, tells them the deep, the deep secrets of the heart. It's somebody that you can trust to tell those deep things to. You learn about friendship in the Lord Jesus. You know that Peter, I think we could call Peter a friend of Jesus, but three times he said, I don't know him. 
You know what Jesus did as a friend? He said, Peter, do you love me? I love you. You you love me? Yeah, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. That's what friends do. They forgive each other. They don't give up just because that friend made a mistake. They, They give it time and they make it right. Friendship in the life of Jesus. What about being a boss? Are you the manager? Are you the owner of your company? Are you the boss? I'll give you one place you can look and learn so many lessons, you'll spend a week studying it. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus gave a parable about going out to the vineyard to hire laborers. Listen to what you can learn. Bosses, listen. Managers, how to make a contract with people. How to search for good laborers. How to pay people properly. Don't let your employees run over you. Don't let them riot and run the business. Reward quality work instead of quantity. That's all in Matthew 20. That's just one chapter. In John 13, Jesus says, I'm your master, but he was washing their feet. What does this tell me as the boss? I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. Even though I'm the boss, I'm still going to be a part of the job. The disciples asked Jesus one time, we've forsaken all. What do do we get out of this? He says, in the light, in the world to come, you'll receive a hundredfold. He rewards their hard work. If I'm the manager, I read that and I say, that's the kind of master or boss that I, I should be. Jesus delegated. He told his disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, right? Delegate. You know what it says five verses later? that the disciples went out to preach the Lord working with them. Even though he's the boss, he would still be busy getting the job done. What about an employee? The next thing on the list, an employee. What can we learn from Jesus as an employee? We read in Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus was not here to start riots, to start Uh, union strikes he was here to get a job done that's it he wasn't here to fast track his way to fame and fortune he just wanted to get the job done Jesus said my father worketh hitherto and I work Jesus didn't come to argue with his fellow employees he stayed busy about the father's business listen to this Those of you that just wake up tomorrow morning, you're gonna go to work and you think, what difference am I making as a Christian? How can I be pleasing to God with my job? What did Jesus do up until the time he was 30? Because when he was 30, he got baptized and started his ministry. What did he do before that? He was a carpenter. Mark 6, verse three, he was a carpenter. He learned that trade when he was young from his father. Listen to what happened at the baptism of Jesus. The father said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What had Jesus preached by that point? Nothing. What miracle had he done at that point? Nothing. You know what Jesus had done by that point? Grown up, got a job. And the father said, I'm well pleased. That tells me something, that as a simple employee, woodworking, I can be pleasing to God. There's something in the life of Christ for everybody. You say, but Brother Mike, wait a minute. I got a special situation because where I work, I work with a bunch of heathen. 
a, bu- a bunch of wicked, corrupt, filthy, lazy, greedy, complaining, corrupt people. I see a few of you nodding, going, yep, that's, that's where I work. That's where I work. These people are just difficult. How do you work with that? Didn't Jesus have in his employ a man named Judas? Who sold him out and was corrupt and greedy and he was a thief and carried the bag? Go home and get your pick and get your shovel and study how Jesus dealt with Judas. All the way to the end, friend, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? I suggest that you read Psalm 109 where Jesus in Psalm 109, Jesus spends almost the entire chapter praying for Judas. It's a bit brutal, by the way. It's a tough prayer, but there's an example. I'm going to step out of the chocolate and vanilla and get into some of the stranger flavors just to end this. What about sports? What about sports? I started to think a little deeper. You know, these things we've covered so far, everybody Everybody deals with these things. What about sports? Could you learn anything about sports from the life of Jesus? Absolutely. You need to know your opponent before you play him. Jesus knew all the tricks of the devil. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a liar from the beginning. Jesus knew his opponent. He knew the power of discipline. You have to take up your cross daily. In John 19, Jesus said, it is finished. You can't win unless you finish. You have to follow through. Every sport I've ever played, that's key. You have to follow through. I don't care if it's tennis, golf, bowling, basketball, rugby. You can't just stop. You've got to follow through. You've got to work as a team. Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. You've got to work together as a team. You've got to listen to your coach. All of this will fit. But did you know we don't read one time about Jesus playing sports? Now, there's a very good historical reason for that. The Olympics in the time of Jesus were a very, oh my goodness, lascivious affair. It was, it was a, a nasty thing. I won't even give you the details. It was horrible what they did. Horrible. There's nothing in the Bible against playing rugby. I'm sure there's a verse against cricket, but I haven't found it. <laughs> I haven't found it yet, but it's in there, no doubt. No doubt. There's nothing wrong with sports, but listen, the fact that you don't have much information from Jesus about sports tells me something. It shouldn't be the center of your life. You look at the inordinate emphasis that people put on sports in this country, and then look at the life of Christ. There's nothing wrong with playing. Nothing wrong with, listen, Jesus even mentioned leisure, Mark 6. He said that the disciples needed time for leisure, or leisure as you guys say. You see, sports can fit if you look for it, but it shouldn't be the center of your world. Be very careful. What about this one? Being sick. What can you learn about that from the life of Jesus? Sitting in the hospital this week, I had a long time to think about that. While they were cutting into the side of my head, I thought about this. I I did my work on this part of the sermon right then. (laughs) Jesus when he's hanging on the cross, you know what he said? I thirst. If you're sick, tell the nurse what you need. (laughs) I'm thirsty. (laughs) 
Don't be afraid to tell them that you're thirsty, that you're weak, that you need help. After Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says angels came and ministered unto him. Let people help you. Let people help you. You say, but this is Jesus. When did he ever get sick? Jesus did experience physical pain. He's hanging there on the cross, and you know what he's doing? First thing he did is pray for the other people. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So when that sister sticks the IV in and she does it wrong, Father, forgive her. <laughs> she doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's all in the life of Christ. While I'm laying in one bed, the guy next to me is an Orthodox Jew. He had the phylactery, the front lip between the eyes, the armband. You guys remember learning that in Matthew class this year? Orthodox Jew in the bed next to me. What am I doing? There, there's the penitent thief. God, give me a chance. I want to win this soul to Christ. I'm in, I'm in a hospital bed. I'm giving out tracts as the people come by. Why? Just because I'm sick doesn't mean I'm useless. So many things you can... What about this next one? Searching for a spouse. What about that? While Jesus was on the earth, he was searching for people that would fall in love with him. He, listen, those, those of you that are single, Jesus maintained a high standard, did he not? Forsake all and follow. I mean, it was all or nothing. He, he was picky, wasn't he? He said, I don't want a Gentile. I don't want a Samaritan. I've come for the house of it, wasn't he? He was picky. But when a Gentile or when a Samaritan came around, Jesus would still be open-minded and converse with them. And they ended up falling in love with him anyway. But he never dropped his standards. Jesus was very careful of this. Listen, those of you that are single and searching, oh, you young ladies, listen to this. Jesus said, you draw nigh with your lips, but in your heart you're far from me. Be very careful when they come with these wonderful things to say, oh, you're the most beautiful, greatest thing I've ever seen. Oh, he may have the right words, but the wrong intentions. Make sure that the heart is there. There's something in it. What about, I got two more, we're done. Failure. What could you learn about being a failure from the life of Jesus? Did Jesus ever fail? How could he be our example for failure? Did you know in Isaiah chapter 49, verse five, there's a failure. A failure is mentioned. The Messiah says there, though Israel be not gathered, yet will I be glorified. What was the goal when Jesus came he wanted Israel to repent. He wanted to restore the kingdom. Did it happen? No. Was it his fault? No. No. He did what he could. And he says, even though it didn't work out, yet I'll be glorified. I learned something about failure then. Yes, I am going to strive for the prize of the high calling of God. And I'm going to do everything I can to hit it. But if I fall short, God, I'm going to at least be able to say I gave it my best effort. And I can also look at how Jesus dealt with other people's failures. He was very patient. In, Ma in Mark chapter 16, the disciples 
didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus walked into the room, rebuked them, and then you know what he said next? Now go preach. They failed him, and he still used them. That tells me something about how Jesus views my failures. When I fail him, that doesn't mean he's through with me. He can still use me if I will stay soft-hearted. And then lastly, and this one might surprise you the most, a sinner in need of a savior. How could we possibly learn about a sinner's need for a savior from Jesus? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, what does the Bible tell us? He became a curse for us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us who knew no sin. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus, in the days of his flesh, he cried and he prayed with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard and that he feared. Jesus, when he prayed, he said, Father, please don't leave me in this condition. Bring me back from corruption. Bring me back from the grave, from hell. Bring me out of that. Jesus became sin. And he prayed and said, Father, don't leave me like this. He committed his spirit into the hands of the Father and he knew that was the best he could do. That was when Jesus became sin. When you look at yourself and you say, you know what, all I am is filled with sin. It's one mistake after another. God, I am not worthy of your mercy. You have every reason to forsake me. But God, I'm praying, I'm crying out with all of my heart. I believe that if I commit my soul into your hands, it will be in good keeping. I believe that you can bring me out of corruption. You can change me. You can save me. That's exactly what Jesus did. And it worked. Even a sinner in need of a Savior can learn something from Jesus. The verse I've given at the bottom of the outline is where I'd like to finish today. Peter wrote, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. I've tried to give you quick little tastes into all these aspects of life. What I'd like to encourage you to do over the next weeks and months, sit around your dinner table with your family. Talk about the life of Christ. Say, how, how can Jesus' life affect mine? How can it change mine? In your own private devotions, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and try to find yourself your situation in one of those gospels. He's left us an example. We can follow his steps. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If I can put this mental image in your head of Jesus passing by this morning. And, and he, listen, he knows where you work. He knows the, the pain that you're feeling. He knows the struggles that you have with your friends, with your workmates. He knows all of that. And then he walks by 
and he says, follow me. He is inviting you to learn from him how to live. Now you're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to study it. You're going to have to dig. But I promise you, every aspect of your life, you can find it somewhere in the example of Jesus. Might it be the prayer of your heart this week, God, please make me more like your son. It doesn't matter your profession. It doesn't matter the stage of life. Becoming more like Jesus is always the right answer. If you've never been saved, here's what needs to happen. You need to be born again. That will make you a child of God. That's more like Jesus. He's, a, he's the Son of God. Father, thank you this morning for giving us a glimpse into the life of Jesus. And Father, just little, a little taste here and there is all we were able to manage. But Lord, thank you for showing us what the plan is. We can see now, Lord, where to find the answers we need. Help each and every individual in this room, no matter their age, their profession, their stage of life, what they're going through, please teach them through the life of Christ. Help us all to put on the Lord Jesus Christ this week. Father, what we've heard this morning, please let it sink in deep and help us to put it into practice. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. Amen.